Our reading today is from Acts chapter 16, verses 22 to 34. Acts 16, verses 22 to 34. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At the hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. This is the word of the Lord. And I want to speak today about the power of perspective, the power of perspective. Because as we start this new season in our lives and in the life of our church, where we're seeing extraordinary things happening, people coming to faith in Jesus on a weekly basis, which is exciting, uh, lives being transformed, people being discipled, people being inspired to see their context transformed, uh, whether it's your workplace, your home, your family, your community. But we're also seeing at the same time as all these opportunities, real challenges. Maybe you've got a real challenge today in your personal life. We're seeing real challenges in our city, in our nation, and in our world. It's one of those times in the history of the world where I think it's good for the church to say, what will mark us out from all the people on the face of the earth? You know, what will make us distinct? And one of the things I think is our ability to perceive and understand the times, and that ability is only shaped in the place of worship and prayer. It's a painting by uh, Francesco Lippi, who's a very famous uh, Renaissance painter, which hangs in the National Gallery, has done for a very long time. And over the centuries and over the decades, a number of people uh, were slightly kind of confused and a bit dismissive of this painting. Uh, because although, uh, it's going to come up on the screens actually, and although you know, the colours are quite good and it's pretty in its own way, the closer you look at it, the more you see that the proportions are slightly out of whack, uh, the bits don't quite fit together, uh, some of the heads are too small and some of the hands are too large and some of the hills are in the wrong places, all these sorts of things which just seem a bit odd. And the art critic Robert Cummings was at the National Gallery where it hangs and looking at it, just thinking, I just don't understand. You know, Lippi is such a great painter. What went wrong with this one? And the more he looked at it, he suddenly had this revelation. He thought, wait a minute, Lippi didn't paint this painting to hang in a gallery. He painted it to hang in a church. And actually, it would 
hang just behind the altar in a church. And so anyone who was going to be looking at this painting would be kneeling. And so slightly self-consciously, Robert Cummings kind of looked to his right and his left, made sure no one was around, and actually got down on his knees in the National Gallery and looked at this painting. And suddenly, all the proportions became perfect. When he changed his perspective, he could see what was really going on and realized the hidden beauty and majesty of this painting by Lippi. This is a time where if we're going to have perception, the ability to see what's really going on, we're going to need to be positioned in a place of worship and prayer. I think that's the thing that's going to mark us out as God's people. It's a time of unique complexity, a time where our approach, the thing that will shape our hearts and our minds and our eyes is going to be worship and prayer because you are made to worship. The question in life, the key question in life is not whether you will worship, you will. The question is who or what will you worship? You were made to pray. One of the things I find fascinating about every uh, study in our you know, last few years has been that the proportion of people who say that they pray is increasing, actually increasing, uh, even as other things decrease. The proportion of people who say they pray increases. And one of the things I find fascinating uh, in, on Alpha is I'm in an Alpha group with people who are exploring faith, people uh, who are atheists, people who are agnostic, people who are not sure what they believe. And we get to the week on prayer and almost everyone in the group will say, I pray. And uh, I've often led groups with a friend and, and she says, well, who do you pray to? Like, where do your prayers go? And they say, yeah, it's a really interesting question. I'd never thought of that. And it's fascinating because, because it's almost like people have a desire. It's, it's, it's hardwired in to our natures, into our DNA almost. This desire to want to communicate with a higher being, maybe with our creators. And yet people are doing that and not even knowing to whom they might be speaking or praying. And we see in this passage how worship and prayer are key for us at this cultural moment. How our best hope of reorientating our perspective and perceiving what God is up to and how we might get and join in with him is through prayer and worship. And the first thing we see here is that your perception is not neutral. A friend of mine once said to me, observation is not inert. Your perception is not neutral. McKinsey's have a saying, uh, the management consultants, perception is reality. You shape situations by the way you perceive them and there's a power in the way you frame things and give language and meaning to them. I mean, look at Paul and Silas. In this passage, they're doing exactly what God has asked them to do. They're being faithful, they're being obedient, they're being godly, they're being holy. And they go to Philippi, they see someone come to faith, very exciting, wonderful, they're then, they then not doing anything wrong, just telling people about God, you know, just trying to communicate the good news about Jesus to people who desperately need to hear it. They're not looking for a fight. They're not looking to stir up trouble. And then someone follows them and causes a bit of trouble and they, they free that person, see that person freed from the influence of evil. And because of that, and because of the impact of that, people are furious with them. You know, these people are causing havoc in our city. And so they're attacked and beaten, stripped and bruised and flogged. 
Their reward for being faithful, for trying to help, is that they're criticized, attacked, and severely flogged and thrown into prison. And the jailer's commanded, they put them in the inner cell, the most secure place, no natural light. He fastens their feet in stocks. And I have to be honest with you, if it was me at this stage, I'd start to feel pretty sorry for myself. I'd be like, well, you know, maybe I shouldn't have come to Philippi after all. It was much easier in the other places. Uh, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe we should, God has abandoned us in some ways. It seemed easier when Jesus was doing this stuff. Uh, maybe, God, maybe you've let me down a little bit because I was obedient to you and therefore I thought I'd be um, blessed. And this doesn't feel like a blessing right now, bruised and battered right as I am. And sometimes it can feel a bit like that. Maybe there's a gap between your expectation of how a situation would go and the reality that you're experiencing. Uh, maybe... I don't know, you invited someone to church and they laughed at you, or you spoke up for a colleague and it exploded in your face. Maybe uh, you took a risk on a project at work and it turned out badly. Uh, maybe you know, the person you like didn't like you. Maybe you just got a bit of confusion about what might be happening in your life at the moment. There's a gap between you know, what you think is going on and what could be going on. You're just confused about the right way forward. It's very easy to be confused when you try and do the right thing, but it doesn't seem to work out. And I think in those situations, we have this choice. Are we going to let our circumstances shape how we see our faith? Or are we going to let our faith shape how we see our circumstances? It's a good thing to worship because of your circumstances. When life goes well, when things turn out the way you hoped, you know, when you get a promotion at work, you know, when your kids are nice to you, you know, when, um, you know, oh, you had a good summer, and, uh, you know, when, when your boss is happy with something that you do, when the thing you hoped for happens, it's a good thing to worship when because of your circumstances but it's a great thing a glorious thing to worship in spite of your circumstances I mean look at Paul and Silas you know they're awake at midnight they can't sleep they're bruised and battered they probably can't sleep because they're injured they've got chains around their legs they're in an inner cell it's pretty much the worst situation you could be in and they could just say right we're going to grumble we're going to complain we're going to become cynical but what do they do they flip it. You know, they say, well, you know, you shouldn't have hit me so hard because now I can't sleep. And because I can't sleep, I'm going to sing. So listen up. The hymns are coming. <laughs> you know, you, you put my feet in stocks. Well done. But you left my hands free so I can lift them up in praise and worship. Oh, you put me in the inner cell. You thought that was a bad thing. I now have a captive audience. Everywhere I look in the prison, people are literally captive having to receive my offering of prayer and worship. At midnight in a prison, they're praying and they're worshiping. Fascinating. What an extraordinary thing. And what's even more extraordinary? The prisoners, the other prisoners, are listening to them. I've been in many prisons in my life to visit. And... <laughs> This doesn't happen. You know, prisons can be quite dark places because some of the people in prisons have got quite challenging lives. And if you sing at midnight, people don't give you a round of applause. 
They don't say one more song. They try to kill you. That's basically what happens. And yet the prisoners in this prison are listening. Why? Because they're fascinated. Why? Because it's not often that you get a complete beating and you get flogged and you get put in chains and you get put in the inner cell where no one wants to go. And you pray and you worship. Hymns. What were they singing? I don't know. Maybe a psalm. I like to think Paul was testing out you know, the Christ hymn that he'd later write to the very church that was planted out of this prison in Philippians 2. You know, maybe he did the melody and Silas did the harmony. You know, he sung and Silas tapped out the beat on the wall. It's a powerful thing when you worship in spite of your circumstances. And I find it so inspiring to be in this church. I love this church because I see some of the challenges that you're facing in your life. Some of them very visible and very real and I'm sure very confusing, and yet you dignify your challenges with worship and prayer. I find it deeply moving. Some of the things I see, because I visit people and spend time with people sometimes when they're walking through incredibly challenging circumstances, the way people steward their suffering. and say, so I don't want to miss this chance to bring God praise. And if it, it, it moves me, I know it moves other people as well. To see you lift your hands in praise when loved ones have died and there's complications with people you love and difficulties. And as you navigate those things, as you walk through them, you're worshipping and you're praying and you're interceding for your own situation, but also for other people. I find that deeply, deeply moving. When you're walking through a challenging time, can I just... My, my advice from what I've seen in this church, what I've learned from this church, resist the temptation to complain and grumble. Just resist the temptation to do that. It's okay to do that. Lots of the Psalms are filled with that. But I just encourage you, resist that temptation. Resist the temptation to be cynical. You guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. Resist the temptation to be cynical. You know, resist the temptation to put distance between yourself and other people. And just say to yourself, I'm going to dignify this trial with prayer and worship. I'm going to lean in. I'm not going to lean out. I'm going to make the most of this opportunity to tell God who he is and tell him why I love him. Not because of my circumstances, but in spite of them. See, one of the greatest gifts when you're going through a difficult time is demonstrated in this passage. Verse 24. The authorities in Philippi made a huge mistake, massive. They put them in the cell. You you only need one other person. You've got two people in the cell, you've got church. You know, one you can pray, the other one say, Amen. You know, one you can preach, the other one can kind of clap hands and say, Yes. More, more, you know, shout the preacher down, you know. One you can sing. The other one can tap. You only need two. He put them together. What an encouragement. And I'll say the enemy will always try and fight you one-on-one. And when you're going through a difficult time, can I just encourage you, make sure you're close to other people. Don't be like the cold taken out of the fire that grows cold. Get close. Even though you might not feel like it, even though you might think no one understands you, even though you might say quite rightly, no one has the slightest idea what I'm going through, and they ask the most stupid questions, get close. 
You've got lots of opportunities for that. We're restarting our 7 a.m. prayer meeting on Tuesday morning. I really encourage you to come. I found it so moving when I've come. People gathered here, every age, different backgrounds, praying together at 7 a.m. in the morning. So powerful. Sometimes it helps me take my, my, my eyes off my own challenges of the morning and just pray for our city, our world, the people we care about. So moved. I, I, a woman who um, is a professor at a Chinese university who joined our church um, came for the first time just before uh, the summer. And um, I said to her, you ever been to church before? She said, no, it's my first time in church. I said, oh, where do you normally go to church? She said, I've never been in any church in my life before. So I'm visiting professor. I just thought I'd try it while I was here. Four weeks later, I was walking down Pembroke Street. I was late for the prayer meeting. So late, it had already finished. And um, <laughs> she was coming the other way, you know, one minute past eight. I said, well, hi, how's it going? She says, yeah, it's going really well. I said, what are you doing around so early in the morning? She says, oh, do you know, the church runs a prayer meeting <laughs> at 7 a.m. She says, it's great. She said, you should try it sometime. I said, I'll try it. <laughs> Thanks. Pretty Christian, four weeks, telling me how to pray. I really encourage you to be in a group. If you're not in a group, can I encourage you to get in a group this time? Got groups meeting all over the city. Great way to gather together, to worship together, to encourage each other in our workplaces as we try and raise children, as we navigate you know, the complex world, the dating scene, whatever it is, whatever you're facing at the moment, there's a group we'd love to put you in that can support you and encourage you. I really encourage you to keep gathering together. You know, our behold evenings, our rising, to worship and pray together. I think it really makes a difference. Your perception is not neutral, and what shapes your perception is your worship and your prayer. You know, their pain is a catalyst for their prayer, and their suffering is a stimulus for their songs. The second thing we see here is that your praise and your prayers are powerful. Now, I've been a Christian long enough to know that not every prayer I've prayed has been answered. And if you're new here today, I just want to say, you might pray some prayers that aren't answered in the way you would hope. And there's lots that's confusing about that at times, that it's difficult and sometimes painful. But sometimes the risk of that is that we can become a little bit complacent about prayer, we can become a bit cynical about prayer, and we can think no prayer is answered or just it's hardly worth trying. It's one of the reasons I love doing Alpha is because I spend lots of time with people for whom the idea of God responding to prayer is a very new thing. Uh, my friend Andy came on Alpha, who's an Alpha group with me, he uh, was raised by two atheist parents. He was raised as an atheist. He was told by his parents when he was seven years old. He said, well, it seems like people in school have like faith. They said, yes, you're an atheist. <laughs> and he was like given his faith at seven years old and, uh, and was raised as an atheist. And you know, he decided to come in his late 20s on Alpha. And uh, he enjoyed it. He was a bit um, cheeky the first seven weeks. <laughs> and then uh, in between the seventh and the eighth week, he came to church, decided to come to church, and in that church service, as he heard the worship, as he heard people pray, he decided he wanted to become a Christian. So he became a Christian. That was a Sunday. And I hadn't really realized that had happened. And then um, in the week, we were back on Alpha. And uh, he just said, I've become a Christian. I said, wow, it's amazing. But I didn't even get a chance to respond because then Holly arrived, who's also in the group. And they've given me permission to share this. And, and Holly said, I'm sorry I'm late. I said, why? Why? She said, are you okay? She said, Absolute disaster shed. I've just finished work. I've got to go back and work another three hours. I said, why? She said, I'm bidding for this massive, uh, big marketing contract with a big company. And I thought it might lead to a lot of other jobs with the same company. And we just had a meeting with the CEO. It was a bit of a disaster. And, 
and I, I think I'm going to lose the whole contract, and I'm self-employed, and this is the whole thing, and da 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 da. Anyway, I, I was thinking, what advice can I give Holly on how to win, how to do a pitch for a marketing contract? So I was thinking, you know, maybe I should tell her, you know, start with this, or crack a joke early on, or, you know, all this kind of really useful advice. Andy, before I'd even had a chance to say anything, said, let's pray. And I was like, whoa, whoa. I mean, that's not, that might not be helpful for Holly because she might not win the contract. She'll be devastated and think God hates her. But also because this is Andy's first ever prayer. I mean, like, you know, I would normally recommend if you're going to pray your first ever prayer, go for a non-measurable outcome. Like, you know, because, you know, you know, just, this is very specific. We're going to know in 24 hours if, it, if she's won or lost. That's just, this is not, before I even got a chance to say anything, Andy's away. He said, God, uh, I know you love Holly. Would you give her this job? And not just this job, but all the other jobs. I'm like, <laughs> anyway, we went away. We came back the next week. Uh, Holly came in. We said, how'd it go? She said, do you know what? I got not just that job, but then the company has appointed me as the marketing lead for all the other premises in the whole country. And he was like, told you. <laughs> I was like, all of them. She said, yeah, all of them. I said, last week. She said, yeah. I said, that's amazing. Andy looked at me and said, Steve, do you, why, why are you so surprised? <laughs> so I do think prayer has an impact, although I don't always understand it. As they worship and pray here, there's such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison are shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. And I just want to say, you might be here today and you might be saying, well, that's an interesting coincidence. Just want to acknowledge that. Name it. That's an interesting coincidence. But I want to ask you the question, do you think it's random? Do you think it's a coincidence or do you think it's providence? Because earthquakes do happen frequently in some parts of the world. But this is an interesting kind of earthquake. It's a very specific earthquake at a very specific time with very specific impacts. It shakes the foundations, but it doesn't demolish the prison. It opens the doors, but it doesn't knock down the walls. It loosens the chains. Coincidence or providence shakes the foundations. This is happening right now. So I find so moving about this passage. I spent some time recently with house church pastors from China. And I won't say where or when. And a few hundred of them, and they're responsible for hundreds of house churches. And I was so struck when I was worshipping and praying with them that uh, this book is really their only comfort. And stories like this are really their only comfort. Because if you're living in a context where one of the most powerful empires in the history of the universe are opposed to what you're doing, have extraordinary means of surveillance and ability to find out what you're doing, and want to demolish your church, arrest your congregation, persecute your family, imprison you, and probably kill you. A passage like Acts 16 is the hugest encouragement in the world. Because you look at the words of the New Testament and you think like, oh, I'm not the first. Oh, oh, this generation is not the first. Oh, actually, since the dawn of the church, there have been regimes and empires who wanted to eliminate the Christian faith from the face of the globe. And 2,000 years later, they haven't been that successful. And actually, the, the gospel has flourished, not just in spite of this persecution, but often because of it. 
So I often think of myself, I think I don't want to do anything to undermine my brothers and sisters in China's confidence in the authority of this word, because this is the book that's giving them confidence when they're in fear of their lives. But what's shaken? It says the foundations of the prison are shaken. I really sensed when I was preparing this. You know, there are institutions and empires and governance and companies in the world who want to you know, oppose God's people, who want to go against God's purposes. And I would say to them, if ever they're listening, you can do that, but I just ask you to check the strength of your foundations. Because if you want to stand in opposition to God's purposes, check your foundations. I hope they're strong. I hope they're reinforced. And I want to say to you, if you're feeling a bit troubled by stuff going on in our world, the only other place in Scripture that this, this, this word shaken is used is in 2 Thessalonians 2. 2. Where it says, don't be shaken by what's going on. So I encourage you, don't let the world shake you. Shake the foundation of the world with your press. See what God might want to do through your prayers, in your business, in your workplace, in your context. See how he might want to use you. I mean, there's a handful of people here singing and praying, and the prison is shaken. The chains fall off. And today, you know, Philippi is pretty much gone. The Roman Empire is gone. Their prayers and worship, we remember. They're still testifying to the world. Philippi is really only remembered for what happened here, and the fact that Paul wrote a letter to it when he was in prison somewhere else. And what happens? The jailer wakes up and he's about to fall on his sword because of the shame. And Paul says, don't harm yourself. We're all here. Now that makes no sense. Makes absolutely no sense. Uh, The the chains come off and prisoners don't escape. I have, when I was a criminal barrister, I have represented people who escaped from prison and succeeded. I've done that, and then later they've been arrested and you know, brought to trial for escaping from custody, including, to be honest, one guy who escaped from an open prison, which is pretty embarrassing. Like that's, even he was embarrassed. When I was meeting to talk about the offense, I said, you escaped from Ford Open Prison? I was like, he was like, yeah. I was like, was that difficult? He said, no, I just walked out. <laughs> he said, do you think they'll make a big thing of it in court? I said, why? He said, I'm worried people will mock me for it. I was like, well, why did you walk out? He said, I don't know, I just thought I'd walk out. I've I've represented people who have tried to escape from prison and failed and been charged with attempted escape. I've represented people who have actually managed to escape from custody while I was representing them. (laughs) Which shakes your confidence in your own abilities as a barrister. If they're not waiting to see how the verdict goes, they just say, I'm off, mate. (laughs) I have never in my life represented or heard of a prisoner who had the opportunity to escape but decided not to. But what's going on? Well, Paul and Silas aren't going anywhere. Their perspective is fascinating. You know, they're not worried about the Philippian rulers. They don't think that the regime or the prison or the governors are sovereign. They know that God is sovereign. They know that everyone else is not that powerful. So they've know that the authorities have acted contrary to God's purposes. They know that God's purposes can't ultimately be defeated. They know that any action that's taken contrary to God's purposes will be turned for good and for God's glory. So they're like, right, so we've been imprisoned. We've had a bit of a beating. Let's see how God flips this one around. Oh, our our chains have come off. That's the first bit. But he can turn it for his good. So let's see what happens next. They're not going anywhere. 
They've spent enough time with God to know that he can flip situations, not just 180, but 360. So they're like, let's see. This is going to be exciting. What's the next part? They're not going to run from prison because they have the opportunity to see someone saved. And they probably think, who knows? That might be the reason we've had a beating and been in prison. If so, great. What about the other prisoners? Well, it's extraordinary they don't move. The foundations shake, the doors open. But they've seen people worshipping in chains. So they want to see what happens next. But it's so exciting. It's like something is going on. And we want to see it. And I want to tell you, the way you worship and prayer will have an impact on those around you. The way you steward your suffering will have an impact on those around you. People are watching you right now. I know you don't think that. I know you don't think when you're at your workstation, on your ward, or in your classroom, wherever you're placed in the week, I know you don't think, well, people aren't watching me. People don't think about how I live. But they are. And they're curious. They're fascinated. Because there's something that marks you out from all the people around you. still remember... uh, I was doing a very difficult case once and it got very, 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 very difficult. And the, the solicitor who was instructing me was uh, at least twice my age, very experienced solicitor. And lots went wrong on one particular day. And uh, he phoned me and he just was like, all the time down the phone, Stephen, this has happened. What are we going to do? And then this has happened. What are we going to do? It's a disaster. And then this has happened. There's no way out of this. Then this has happened. And this has happened. And this has happened. And so I just said, well, I, I mean, I think we could do this and we could do this, and we could do this, and I'd probably need to think about the next thing. He said, why are you so calm? I was like, oh, sorry, do you want me to panic? And he said, he said no, but why are you so calm? I said, and I thought in the moment, I thought, oh, I've been praying in the morning. Like the last three months, I've been coming into work early, just for half an hour to pray. You know, I was a bit embarrassed, so I'd shut my door, you know, and, and when someone walked in, I'd kind of clear the prayer books away, you know. I don't know what they thought I was doing first thing in the morning, but I, um, but I would, you know, and, but I'd pray first thing in the morning. And it had a shaping impact on my heart and my mind. People are watching you. Don't underestimate the power of your witness. And then this, the jailer asked, Sirs, what must I do to be that I may be saved? And that's a great question, probably the great question, a question so many people have asked in this church over the last 18 months. What can I do to be saved? He doesn't know a lot. Didn't even hear the hymns. He was asleep. But he knows he needs saving. Do you know you need a rescuer? Because if you know you need a rescuer, you are far closer than you could possibly imagine. And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. You and your household. Now that is faith. That's faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus, you who I'm speaking to, and you'll be saved. Not just you, but your whole household. I read this, I think, he hasn't met his household. What's his mother-in-law like? Could be a nightmare. I love mother-in-laws, by the way. I just He might have a teenage son. How can you say that? But Paul's got faith. He's got faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And I tell you, as I prepared this talk, I had a sense, you know, I, I give thanks to God for everything he's done in our church over the last year. 
Since January, we've, we've been seeing people come to faith just at a surprising rate, pretty much a weekly basis. Heard of another one last week. That's a miracle, and we thank God for it. But what I sense is that in this season now, we're going to pray for households to come to faith. We're going to pray for households. And I would love if you would join with me during September, just, just each day. You can do whatever you like and do two things. Now, I'd love you to pray. I'd love you to maybe worship at some point in the day. You probably already do that. I'm a beginner. But maybe you just want to worship at some point in the day. Just find, find a song that you love. It might be that Thanksgiving song that we sung earlier on. Or it, for you, it might be Handel's Messiah. Or it might be uh, you know, something in between, like um, Stormzy's got a great song called Holy Spirit. And uh, whatever it is for you, just something that you play each day. Just put your headphones in if you've got them, or sing out loud in your open plan office if you like. <laughs> and just worship. And just commit everything you're facing to God. And then I encourage you, another point of the day, just pray. And I'd encourage you to pray for your household. You can pray for our city, you can pray for our nation, you can pray for the world. But first and foremost, I'd encourage you to pray for your household. Pray for your family, maybe pray for your parents, pray for your children, pray for your brothers and sisters, pray for your people you're in a flat show with, pray for your colleagues, pray for your boss, pray for the person you travel on the bus with, pray for the person you travel on the train with, pray for the person you get your coffee from, pray for your household. And ask that between now and Christmas, you might see members of your household come to a living faith in Jesus Christ. Would you be up for that? Because I think this is a season when in our church, the Lord is going to bring households to faith. And I want to pray for households. And then what we're going to do is we work through September. We're going to have 10 days of prayer and worship starting on the 17th of September. We're going to worship and we're going to pray and we're going to fast actually. And I don't know much about fasting, but I'm up for it. And for 10 days... We're just going to worship and pray and fast and see what God might want to do. And what happened? The family, they spoke the word of the Lord to them. Everyone responds. There are baptisms. And he rejoiced with his household. He was filled with great joy. And it didn't end that. I think this is most likely probably the birth of the church in Philippi. You know, God can use a prison break to be a church plant. He can certainly use you in your context to see the purposes of God established in your time. So let's see our circumstances through the lens of our faith. Let's get on our knees and let's worship and see what God might want to do. In Jesus' name, amen.